But would you now turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we will read verses 7 through 16, though we will not get through the whole part, uh, the whole passage um, in the sermon itself, but we'll only discuss through verse 12. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 7. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also had descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body being joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord add His blessing to the preaching of the word today. In the previous passage we received this strong exhortation from the Apostle, which was based upon the truths he had established previously in his letter. He said to us, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In particular, he exhorted us to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, and to bear with one another in love. And in all of this, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Uh, these words, as you know, were for the Ephesians, but they are also for us. Uh, they apply to every church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the question might be asked, what has God supplied us with so that we might be strengthened to walk in this way? How has He equipped the church to fulfill this mandate? What has He given to the church so that she might be built up? And this is the question that Ephesians 4, 7 through 16 answers. In 4, 1 through 6, we received the strong exhortation from the Apostle. But here in 4, 7 through 16, we are told of God's gracious provision for the church. Here, we learn that God has not only commanded us to walk worthy, but He has also graciously provided for our every need so that we might, in fact, attain to this worthy walk. Notice, first of all, that it is the ascended Christ who gives gifts to men. That is the leading statement that we find here in this passage. The ascended Christ uh, who atoned for our sins and who has redeemed us by His shed blood. As He ascended, and from that place of power, He does also give gifts to His people. In other words, it is through the Christ who was raised from the dead in victory and who ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory that God distributes His gifts to the church so that we might all walk in a manner that is worthy. Now, this is what is communicated in verses 7 through 10, where we again read, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. And then Paul remarks, 
in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, this passage has puzzled many, and a few clarifying remarks are in order, therefore. But before I proceed to explain these verses that I have just read, verses 7 through 10, I want for you to see the very simple message that is at the heart of it. Really, it is a simple message that Paul is communicating. He is saying that grace has been distributed to all who are in Christ. And this grace is distributed according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is what verse 7 says. Not only have we received the gift of salvation, but other gifts have been lavished upon us by Christ as well. And this is Paul's central point. The ascended Christ gives gifts to men. Now, what does Paul mean when he goes on to quote another passage saying in verse 8, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gave gifts to men. And then he adds this word of explanation, which is his own. Verse 9, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Um, Excuse me. Uh, Therefore, by saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended, is Paul's remark here. First of all, it is important to recognize that this is a reference to Psalm 68. When Paul says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gave gifts to men. The it is a reference to Psalm 68. Now, this psalm is too long for us to read in its entirety this morning. As some of you know, I did read this psalm and offered some remarks about it in the prayer meeting devotional this past Wednesday. And I would say that you should read it for yourself if it is unfamiliar to you. But in brief, this psalm is about God's victory over all His enemies. This psalm, Psalm 68, calls for glory to be given to God. It describes God as a king entering victoriously into His heavenly sanctuary. This psalm calls for all who are of Israel's fountain to bless God in the great congregation. That is Psalm 68:26, And it describes the nations of the earth coming to pay tribute to the Lord. It is a marvelous scene. Here God is entering victoriously into His sanctuary. And not only is Israel giving praise to God, but all nations, in fact, are coming to praise His most holy name. The image is that of a victorious king with two groups of people standing before Him, both His enemies who have persisted in their rebellion, who will taste His wrath, and also those who have humbly bowed the knee before Him. And the psalm concludes with these words, Awesome is God from His sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to His people. Blessed be God. That is Psalm 68.35. It is the conclusion to this marvelous psalm. It is a description of God, the God of Israel, giving gifts to His people, giving them power and strength so that they might bless His most holy name. Secondly, it is important to recognize that Paul quotes only from one verse of Psalm 68, and he quotes it loosely, modifying it ever so slightly to fit his context. Pay careful attention here. He loosely quotes Psalm 68, 18, which speaks of God when it says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. Paul does not say this exactly, but instead he says, 
When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. The most significant change is this. Instead of God receiving gifts, Paul says that he gave gifts to men. And this has caused many to wonder what Paul was up to when he referenced Psalm 68. It is odd, isn't it? Here Paul is making reference to some Old Testament text. It is clearly Psalm 68, 18 that he's, he is referring to. But he takes the liberty to, to tweak that verse, to change it a, a bit. Again, the most significant change is this. Instead of God receiving gifts, Paul says that he gave gifts to men. So what was Paul doing? Did he have a lapse in memory when he went to quote Psalm 68, 18? Was he quoting some other translation besides the original Hebrew which led to the discrepancy? And many theories do abound. I won't repeat all of them for you here. But it seems clear to me that Paul was not attempting to quote Psalm 68, 18 with precision, but that his words here in Ephesians 4 are meant to summarize the whole of Psalm 68 and to apply that psalm to his current situation and to explain the true meaning of that psalm in Christ. True, Psalm 68.18 does not say that God gave gifts to men, as Paul says here in Ephesians 4.8, but rather that He received gifts from men. But we should remember how Psalm 68 concludes. It concludes with God giving gifts to His people. Again, Psalm 68.35 says, Awesome is God from His sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to His people. Blessed be God. So again, it is my view that Paul was not attempting to quote Psalm 68.18 with precision. Instead, he was making a reference to the whole psalm. And in one short phrase, he managed to sum up its meaning for the Ephesians and for us. And what was Paul concerned to communicate? That God, who has ascended in victory, gives gifts to His people. Awesome is God from His sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to His people. Blessed be God. This is what Paul wants us to see. That our God who sits high and exalted over every power is eager to pour out blessing upon His people, to lavish them with His gifts, to give them strength and power so that they might walk in a worthy manner and bless His most holy name. Thirdly, and this is the most significant thing to notice about Paul's use of Psalm 68, he applies the whole thing to Christ. In verses 9 and 10, where he says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Paul is here talking about Christ, his descent and his ascent. And here Paul is saying that Psalm 68 is really about Christ. And I do wish that you would take time to reflect upon what Paul is doing here, compare carefully Psalm 68 with Ephesians 4, 7 through 10, and ask yourself, how did Paul and the other apostles being taught by Christ himself interpret the Old Testament scriptures? And the answer is that they saw them as being fulfilled by Christ. Notice just a few things about this point. One, Psalm 68 says nothing about Christ. It only speaks of God who is called the Lord, Yahweh. It says nothing at all about Christ explicitly. Two, Psalm 68 says nothing about descent. It only 
describes God's victor- victorious ascent into His heavenly sanctuary. Descent is not mentioned at all in Psalm 68. Three, and this is the most significant thing to notice, Paul says that this psalm is all about Jesus the Christ. His interpretation of Psalm 68 is that though it speaks of the Lord's ascent, descent is implied. In fact, the whole psalm is about the salvation that has been provided by the Lord through Christ, who is the eternal Son of God come in the flesh. And so, I guess Christ was serious when He taught His disciples after His resurrection, saying, Everything written about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That is Luke 24, 44. And it appears that Paul himself got this memo. He understood that when he read the Psalms, though they had an immediate application for the people of God in that day, and though they were pertaining to situations in that day, the Psalms were ultimately about Christ. And this was true of Psalm 68. It spoke of the victorious ascent of the Lord into His heavenly sanctuary. But Paul understood that it spoke of the ascent of the Christ who is the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh. This was a mystery hidden in ages past, but now that the Christ has come, Paul and the other apostles of Christ could speak with perfect clarity concerning these things. And a victorious ascent does indeed imply a purposeful descent. If a king returns home in victory, receiving glory and honor from his subjects as he returns, it is only because he first went out with the purpose to get the victory. He went out to get the victory, and having accomplished the victory, he returned in glory. And so it is with God in Christ. He ascended in victory only because he first descended with the purpose to redeem. And this is what Paul means in verse 9 of Ephesians 4 when he says, in saying he ascended, What does it mean but that He had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? We know when Christ ascended. Uh, Clearly, He ascended after His death, burial, and resurrection, after showing Himself alive to His disciples for 40 days. Acts 1.6 and following describes His ascent to the Father's right hand. He was taken up in glory. But when did He descend? Well, He descended in His incarnation. He descended when He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. He descended when He was born into this world as He suffered, and especially when He died. When Jesus the Christ was placed into that tomb, the stone being rolled across the entrance of it, that was the lowest point of His descent. And this is what Paul refers to when he says, and I quote, the King James Version here, for I think it is a better translation than the ESV in this instance. Now that He ascended, what is it but that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Uh, The lower parts of the earth is here, I think, a reference to the grave, or to Hades, as it is sometimes called. The grave was the lowest point of the Son of God's descent. But as you know, He was risen from the grave in victory. And it was from the grave that He began, began to ascend, having defeated His every foe, including death itself. And by His victory over sin and death, He did also set captives free. That is what is being described to us here in Psalm 68. And here, this is what Paul is 
referencing as he speaks of the ascent of Christ. And this is what Paul wants us to see, that God in Christ has won the victory, which is the victory that Psalm 68 spoke of long before Christ was born. Furthermore, God in Christ has won the victory and He has set us free. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And not only has Christ redeemed us, He has also given gifts to those who belong to Him just as Psalm 68.35 says once more, Awesome is God from His sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to His people. Blessed be God. So God, through the victorious and ascended Christ, gives gifts to men. That is the point that is here being made. And what does He give? That is the next question we must ask. What does He give? What are the gifts that God gives to His people in order to strengthen them, in order to empower them so that they might live for the glory of His name. What gifts? Well, we know from other passages of Scripture that God gives many gifts to His people. In fact, He gives spiritual gifts to all who believe upon Him. These gifts are to be used by all who believe for the building up of the body of Christ and for the glory of God. And So if you are in Christ, you have been uniquely gifted to serve Within the church of Christ, which is His body, 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of these gifts. So too does 1 Peter 4, 10-11, which says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, God gives many gifts to His people. He gives spiritual gifts to all of His people, and they are to be used for the glory of God and for the building up of the body of Christ. And this passage in Ephesians 4 will also conclude with a reference to the giftedness of every believer, saying near to the end of it, that we all are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here, Paul is describing the fact that every believer has been uniquely gifted by God and has a part to play in Christ's church. But here in this text, uh, the one that we are considering now, Paul's emphasis is upon something other than the spiritual gifts bestowed upon every Christian. Instead, he is here honing in upon another gift that Christ has given to the church, namely, ministers of the Word of God. Paul is here teaching that Christ has called and gifted ministers of the Word, and that these ministers of the Word are, in fact, Christ's gift to the church. Christ has called undeserving men, such as myself, to the ministry and has equipped them to take the place of a servant in the midst of the Christian congregation so that the Word of God might be proclaimed and taught for the building up of the body of Christ. And this is what Paul is here talking about in this text. In verse 11, we read these words, And he gave. This indicates that Paul is about to specify the gifts that the ascended Christ has distributed to his people. And what does he say? Verse 11, And he gave these things, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. As I have said, Paul is here teaching that 
one of the gifts that Christ has given to His church are ministers of the Word of God, for that is, which e- that, that is what each one of these things are. These are ministers of, of the Word. Apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ who were sent by Christ to do what? They were to preach and teach the Word. Prophets, and I take this as a reference to the prophets who lived in the age of the apostles, were again ministers of the Word. They spoke with prophetic authority, just as the prophets under the Old Covenant did, saying, Thus says the Lord. Excuse me for just a moment. Evangelists are also ministers of the Word. I think when you think of an evangelist, you are to think of what we might today call a missionary or a church planter who is sent out from a local church to plant local churches. And how are local churches planted except through the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the word? Uh, This is what an evangelist is, a church planter locally and abroad. They are to preach the word of God, preach the gospel, teach the scripture so that churches might be established. And teachers are also ministers of the word They are to teach the scriptures faithfully in the Christian congregation. While all shepherds are teachers, not all teachers are shepherds. It is our view that some may be gifted as teachers, but not called to the office of elder within the local church. Lastly, shepherds, who are elsewhere called pastors, elders, or overseers, they are ministers of the Word of God. That is the thing that all of these offices have in common. They are to serve within the local congregation in one way or another, and they are to minister the Word of God. And Paul is here teaching that ministers of the Word are gifts from Christ for the good of the church. Through their faithful ministry, the church will be strengthened and unified so long as they do, in fact, minister the Word of God so that the Word of God is powerfully present in the midst of the Christian congregation. Paul has already said in this epistle Uh, that the apostles and prophets make up the foundation of the new creation, temple of God, with Christ Himself being the cornerstone. There are no longer apostles and prophets in in the church today, therefore, for their ministry was a foundational ministry. The apostles served in a special way as Christ's ambassadors, being eyewitnesses of His resurrection and commissioned by Him directly. The prophets, too, spoke with a special kind of authority, again, saying, Thus says the Lord. Uh, Today, there are shepherds and there are teachers who minister the word in the local congregation. And evangelists minister the word being sent by her, by the local congregation near and far to plant churches through the proclamation of the gospel and to see to their establishment. And what is the task of these ministers of the word? What are they to give themselves to? What are they to commit themselves to? In verse 12, we learn uh, that though these offices differ in the details of of their uh, obligations and callings, they share these three things in common. One, these ministers of the Word are to equip the saints. Two, they are to devote themselves to the work of ministry And three, they are to labor for the building up of the body of Christ. These three things are what every minister of the Word 
is to devote himself to. If you've been around the church for a while, and especially if your church experience has been outside of the Reformed tradition, as was the case for most of us, you might notice that my explanation of Ephesians 4.12 is a little different from the one that is popular today. The popular view is not that these three things are the work of the minister, but only the first of the three. The last two are often said to be the work of the church member. The way that the ESV reads, along with most other modern English translation, actually leads to the popular interpretation that I have just mentioned. Let me read it again, commenting along the way so as to explain the view that has grown in popularity, at least in this country over the last 50 years or more. Again, verse 12 uh, in the ESV, uh, we read, These words that Christ has given the church, these ministers of the gospel, and their job is to equip the saints. And then it is the job of the saints, many assume, to do the work of the ministry. And all of this is for the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, That is how most read this text. As I have said, this is the popular view today. And as I have said, the ESV nudges the reader in that direction by not inserting a comma after the phrase, to equip the saints. But I think a strong case can be made for a comma there. In fact, uh, the King James Version puts a comma there, and I think this is the correct translation. It reads like this, Ministers of the Word have been given by Christ to the church, and I quote, for the perfecting of the saints, and then there is a comma, for the work of ministry, and then there is another comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And I think this translation rightly communicates that each of these things is the task of the minister of the Word of God. Christ has given the church evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, and their task, their focus is to be the equipping of the saints. They are to devote themselves to the work of ministry, and they are to labor for the building up of the body of Christ. This is the task of the one who has been called to the ministry of the Word. And though I cannot see you all right now, I can still feel you thinking to yourself, why does this matter, Pastor? What difference does this make in the end? Well, I would argue that it makes a pretty big difference in the end. I will admit that my past experiences might have something to do with my sensitivity to this issue. Uh, In my experience, there is a trend within churches today for pastors to be distracted with many things and to, in fact, neglect what it is that they have been called and appointed to do and also to delegate the so-called work of the ministry to the saints. Here I am referring to that model of church leadership that views the pastor as a kind of CEO whose job it is to cast a vision and then to mobilize others to actually do the work of the ministry. And I think this has become a problem in the church today. The end result is that pastors do not act like pastors. And then laymen are doing the work that pastors should be doing though they have not been called, equipped, or appointed by the congregation to do that work. Perhaps you have been in a church like this where 
every member is considered a minister. Uh, This is a phrase that is popular today in many traditions. Every member is a minister. There's a kernel of truth in that, isn't there? We are all to serve within Christ's church. We're to use our spiritual gifts. But ultimately, I think this view is flawed. The distinction between officer and member, layman and clergy, is all but obliterated in many traditions. And I think it is unhealthy. It is something that we must guard against. And it is a misinterpretation of Ephesians 4.12 at its core. Now, before you get all up in arms, I will say, um, it is true, as I have just said, that all Christians are called to serve uh, within the congregation. Uh, You might, in fact, reply to what I have just said with these comments, but shouldn't a pastor delegate? And shouldn't each member serve within the church? And my response to those questions is this, of course they should. I have already said that Paul speaks of spiritual gifts elsewhere. He even concludes this passage by exhorting each member to do his or her part, the end result being that the body grows and builds itself up in love. But here I am saying, and I believe that this is Paul's point, that pastors need to act like pastors. There are simply some responsibilities that should not be delegated by pastors to the members of the church. Their calling is to equip the saints. Their calling is to do the work of the ministry. And their calling is to build up the body of Christ as ministers of the Word of God. I was discussing this passage with my children and my wife last night. And I thought of this illustration. Uh, It would be kind of like a parent over-delegating responsibilities to uh, their children. It is right as a parent if I ask my children to wash the dishes, for example. That is a completely acceptable form of delegation within the home, wouldn't you agree? But if I say to my oldest daughter, it is now your responsibility to discipline your siblings, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? The household would be led into disarray. And I believe that is what has happened in many congregations. Pastors have stepped back from their responsibilities and have left too much to the ministers. They have over-delegated things that they should not delegate. Here, that is the thing I am concerned to communicate Pastors need to act like pastors. They need to give themselves to the equipping of the saints, to the work of ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ as ministers of the Word of God. To equip means to make someone completely adequate or sufficient for something. And this is the task of the minister, to devote himself to making those under his care adequate or sufficient for the work and walk that the Lord has called them to. A ministry means service. But here the word is being used to refer to the work that ministers of the word are to engage in. What is that work all about? What does it entail? Do you want to know more about the work that uh, pastors are to do? Well, the best place to go is to the pastoral epistles that Paul himself wrote. When Paul wrote to pastors Timothy and Titus, he provided a thorough explanation of what the work of the ministry entails. Uh, For our purposes here, I want for you to notice two things. One, the pastoral ministry is work. It is hard work. And it is also service. I think it is important for those who desire to go into the ministry to come to terms with these two things. Pastoral ministry is work, and it is a work of service. I suppose that preaching is the task that most think of when they envision the work of the ministry. And preaching is certainly a very important part of the ministry. In fact, it is probably the most important part, the central thing that a minister does. He must 
minister the Word of God through preaching in the midst of the Christian congregation. But there is so much more. The Word of God is to be ministered in many other less glamorous ways. The church must also be led. The flock must be comforted, encouraged, exhorted, and sometimes disciplined. A pastor, if he is to fulfill his calling, must clothe himself with the garb of a servant, for he is called to a work of service. Lastly, Paul says that the minister of the Word is given to the church for the building up of of the body of Christ. And two metaphors are mixed here. First of all, we have the image of a home builder, That is what the noun translated as building up means. It refers to a home builder. And this image certainly corresponds to what Paul said earlier in Ephesians about uh, the church uh, being uh, the new creation temple of God. Uh, He described Christians as being spiritual stones in God's new creation temple. And ministers of the word are given by Christ for the building up of this spiritual house which is elsewhere called a dwelling place for God. And secondly, we have the metaphor of the church as the body of Christ, which Paul will expand upon later in this passage. Ministers of the word are given to the church for the building up of the body. That is Paul's point. I had originally intended to go further uh, through to the end of verse 16, but I simply ran out of time. Uh, We will consider verses 13 through 16 next Sunday, Lord willing, and there we will see the intended result of a faithful ministry of the Word within Christ's church, namely unity, maturity, stability, and growth within the church amongst the members of the congregation. Let me conclude today's sermon by making a few suggestions for application. First of all, It is important for us to see that Christ has provided not only for our salvation, but as 2 Peter 1.3 says, for He has provided us with all things that pertain to life and godliness. Having ascended in victory, Christ gave gifts to men. To quote quote again Psalm 68.35, which I have come to love, as you can tell, Christ is the one who gives power and strength to His people. Blessed be God. You are, therefore, well supplied, friends. When God redeemed you, He did not leave you poor and vulnerable. He did not leave you to wander aimlessly in this world. He did not leave you to figure out how it is that you are going to be nourished spiritually or how it is that you are to be strengthened with power so that you might obey Him. Uh, To the contrary, He has lavished you with good gifts and He has supplied for your every spiritual need so that you may walk worthy. Let us therefore appreciate those gifts and let us make use of them as members of the body of Christ. Two, let us appreciate Christ's gift to the church in the form of ministers of the word. Ministers are to be supported so that they might devote themselves to the word, to prayer and to the oversight of the church. And these ministers are to make it their objective to be faithful servants of Christ and of his church. Uh, this was Paul's perspective, as he said in 1 Corinthians 4.1, This is how one should regard us, speaking of himself and the other apostles, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithfulness to Christ and to the gospel of Christ should be the minister's goal. And every local church should appreciate the ministry of the word 
and should make every effort to encourage and to support it. Three, and this will become abundantly clear as the text progresses, let us recognize that it is not the minister himself who is the source of blessing within the church. He is not the one who brings about her growth. Instead, it is who he represents, namely Christ, and it is what he ministers, namely the Word of God, that brings about the growth of the church. Stated a little differently, it would be wrong to assume that it is the minister who has the power to bless or to grow Christ's church in and of himself. No, we know that God can only give true increase, and only God's Word can truly nourish the congregation. And this is why Paul spoke to Pastor Timothy, saying, Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This was the work of the ministry that Paul had entrusted to Timothy. Preach the Word. Why did he command him to do that? Because Paul knew that it was the Word of God that would bring about the growth of the Christian congregation. It is not healthy, friends, for a congregation to be centered around a charismatic personality. This is something that we should be very wary of in our day and age. We should remember Paul's words to the Corinthians saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Paul asks. Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized into the name of Paul? He then goes on to say, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I love that last remark. Paul was in fact careful to not preach with words of eloquent wisdom. He was careful to restrain himself in this regard and to encourage other ministers to restrain themselves in this regard so that the Christian congregation would never make this terrible error of centering themselves around a personality other than Christ. That they would never make that error of centering themselves around a man other than Christ. They were instead to be nourished perpetually by the Word of God, simply read, simply explained in the Christian congregation. This is what would lead to their growth. It seems to me that Paul was very much opposed to a man-centered ministry. To the contrary, he was committed to simple and faithful ministry of the Word of God within the church. And let us desire the same. Let us recognize that the church will flourish when God's word is faithfully ministered in her midst. As Paul said to the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you, plural, richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let us bow for prayer. 
Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have supplied us with our every need in Christ. Father, teach us as your children to not run after this thing or that in the world uh, to, to meet our felt needs, uh, but rather uh, to run to those things that you have provided for us, trusting that they are enough. You have given us your word, O Lord. You have given spiritual gifts to your people. You have given ministers to minister your word in the midst of the congregation. So, Father, help us to see these things as being truly blessed. As we come Lord's Day after Lord's Day to hear your word preached, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, supper which is here a visible uh, sign, a visible thing pertaining to the gospel, Lord, may we partake with faith in our hearts, knowing that it is here in these very ordinary means of grace that you feed your church. Father, bless this congregation. May the Word of God dwell in the midst of us richly. And would you bless this congregation for decades to come with ministers of the Word of God who will faithfully proclaim Christ crucified and risen. Lord, help us in these things, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.